0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. It's the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, my fellow suffering beings. How are we doing? When my team and I reached out to the legendary Buddhist nun Pema Chodron to ask her about her non-negotiables, the practices or principles she cannot live without, she came back with one very radical answer. Fair warning, this is challenging stuff, and I'll tell you what it is in a moment. But to make the medicine go down a little bit easier, let me tell you about the benefits that she says she has derived from making this practice the center of her life. It's helped her deal with difficult people and set boundaries. It's helped her have a sense of humor about her own foibles and failings. And it has helped her feel a general sense of okayness in the face of whatever happens. I find that last one extremely appealing as an anxious person. Okay, so here it is. Her non-negotiable is something called the Bodhisattva vow. I will let her explain that in more detail. But essentially, it is this, putting other people ahead of yourself. As I said, this is challenging. Some of you might hear it as a recipe for becoming a doormat. But Pema says it is anything but. It does not stop you from getting angry or standing up for what's right. And it doesn't preclude you from advocating for your own interests. But she says this vow can give you a sense of clarity and perspective. And these are my words, not hers. It's a radical way to pull your head out of your ass. Before we dive in here, a little bit more about Pema Children. She was born as Deirdre Blomfield Brown in New York City in 1936. She then became a Buddhist nun and resident teacher at Gampo Abbey in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, which is the first Tibetan monastery in North America established for Westerners. And she's the author of numerous best selling books, including When Things Fall Apart and How We Live Is How We Die. This is a great conversation. Enjoy. Emma Children, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Such a pleasure to have you on, especially at this time of year when people are thinking a lot about uh, their lives and how to improve them. When we first asked you about this concept of your non-negotiables off mic, off camera, your first response was a really interesting one. You said that for you, a non-negotiable is the Bodhisattva vow. Could you describe what that is?
1: Well, you know, in essence, it's about putting other people's needs and what people need ahead of your own needs. To go into more detail, you actually take a vow. Usually people don't have a clue what they're getting into when they take this vow. (laughs) It's like you think you know what you're doing because you care about people, you want to help. And people do kind of inform you, you know, but still, mostly we take this vow quite naively, initially. So you take the vow that you are going to devote your life to becoming a good vehicle for benefiting other people, and that that will be the most important thing of all, is you know awakening or waking up so that you can help other people. So in other words, any work I do on myself, if I've taken this vow, is not the main point. It's kind of the vehicle or what allows me to be there for other people without running away, shutting down, turning my back on them, getting triggered, traumatized or whatever, you know, that's sort of what it is. But it's quite a challenge. You know, you take a vow like that and then you set out to live by it as genuinely as you can. And the first thing you find, right, is where you can't do it, where, where it's actually pretty difficult to do.
0: Is this a vow that is only taken by nuns and monks or... Is this something the rest of us can or should oh, do? Oh no, no,
1: you should do it, Dan. You should do it. <laughs> <laughs> do it, you'll love it. <laughs> um, no, no, no. It's it's um, when you become a Buddhist, you go through a formal ceremony which is called taking refuge, and then based on that, you can go further and take the Bodhisattva vow. And it's actually for lay people and monks and nuns, but it's definitely very secular in the sense of whatever your life is, what like your life, what you do, that can be the vehicle. Probably that's part of your motivation, or maybe your whole motivation is to help people, you know, not get so depressed, not get so discouraged, and uh, bring some kind of inspiration or bigger view to people. So people do it however they do it, you know. Uh Some people, are, of course, are just naturally drawn to being activists or to really getting their hands dirty and going into like doctors without borders, you know, wherever things are the worst, we show up, you know. There are a lot of people, and you probably know a lot of them, interviewed a lot of them, that that's their passion in their life. That's what draws them. But I, I've never been able to do that because I have kind of, I've had bad health. Right now, I'm actually, the older I get, the better my health gets, ironically. But it turns out that my vehicle is a teaching, you know, and that's how to help. And then also, I do a lot of personal interviews, people coming with questions and stuff. That's a way to help. You know, but there's also all the irritating people in your life. (laughs) The people that you don't feel so saintly when you're around them. In fact, it brings up, you know, it just like really pushes every button. You're totally triggered. But the non-negotiableness is that you don't go down that road. The vow holds you to keep your mind open and as much as possible, keep your heart open to this person that's triggering you. You know, there's a lot of ways to do that. I teach about it a lot, actually. But that's where it kind of really gets interesting, you might say, is where it shows you where you're still far from living in total equanimity at all times and never, never bothered by anything. It really highlights what really gets to you, what gets under your skin, where your sore points are, you know. But the vow is that you stick with people, you know. You do whatever you can. You know, it's based on seeing the basic goodness of everybody. Also, you know, called Buddha nature, but basic goodness is a more secular term. There's been many a time for me personally, you know, Where I look at someone and say, uh, I can't find their basic goodness. It must be in there somewhere, but they're so mean or cruel or greedy or or something like this. You know, you see a lot of it, right? In politics. And yet you, there's something like, okay, but everybody has this potential. And how can I talk to this person or just be here with this person in a way that maybe helps them connect with that part of themselves. So obviously I don't go through all that thinking all the time in that way, but that's kind of what's behind it is that the way we interact, the way we communicate, we can help another person or allow the space for another person to connect with the best of themselves.
0: So if you're face-to-face with somebody who's extraordinarily annoying or... (laughs) Somebody whose basic goodness is hard to discern. You might be tempted to say a few unkind words, but in some ways, this vow you've taken to be of service, to help everybody is like a backstop that prevents you from losing it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Maybe internally, (laughs) one might be losing it pretty big time, but you get smarter, you know, about what's really going to help. And so part of the smartness is knowing that there's a lot that could come out of my mouth or even my body language or something that is going to escalate. The tension between us will escalate. And I can speak and act in a way definitely where brings out the worst in them. Maybe in the beginning, I'm just irritated by them. But then with my snappy little remarks or my insults or whatever it is, next thing you know, we're like, we're in a fistfight together practically you know maybe more civilized with our elegant language or something but really we're bringing out the worst in each other so somehow how to stop that chain reaction before it even starts you know in my case i can feel like a keg of dynamite that's just about to go off or something you know but then i take responsibility for my side of it and so i sit in the middle of that explosive thing and just try to open my ears as well as my heart and really listen to what they're saying. And then maybe some kind of leading questions that come from a place where it sounds like I care about them. And you don't want to really fake it exactly, because people can pick that up fast enough. But you do want everybody to be able to connect with the best of themselves. Don't you think so?
0: Uh, In my calm, sane moments, I think so. But when I'm insane or angry, it's easy to forget.
1: Yeah, really. I I hope I'm kind of making that point that I think the vow, the non-negotiableness, that really helps a lot. So for instance, if you were to take Bodhisattva vow and you're feeling explosive, you know, someone said something really mean to you, something very insulting. And of course, the absolutely knee-jerk reaction of everybody is to just throw it right back at them, you know. But there's some kind of basic intelligence that you have, you could even call it a kind of wisdom after a while, where you just know that that's going to make everything worse, and that's going to cause harm, not only to them, but also to me, you know, because Instead of connecting with what's the best in myself, I'm just going down to a a level, you know, of street fighting. So in other words, you can escalate hatred, you can escalate prejudice, you can escalate resentment and all these things really, really easily. Or you can experiment again and again and again until you get smarter and smarter, experiment with what communicates to the heart of another person. And uh, what sure doesn't communicate is lack of genuineness or some kind of condescendence. Oh, my God, condescending. (laughs) That really, really gets someone going through the roof.
0: You mentioned before that you teach a lot of people about how not to snap in situations when they're confronted with somebody provocative. I imagine some percentage of the people you teach either directly or through the best selling books that you've written. I imagine some significant percentage of those readers or students have not taken this vow. So for us mere mortals, what are the techniques that you teach for not losing it when, when the rubber hits the road?
1: Well, mere mortal, let me tell you, (laughs) (laughs) let me tell you, do you see the halo around my head? Um, the main thing that I teach is to feel what I'm feeling. And there's various ways of doing that, but that's the essence of it. So that I kind of become embodied and I'm right there and feeling what is being provoked. It's not about conceptual, you know, or being all up in the head. So it's more like feeling what I'm feeling and owning that totally say the rage i'm beginning to feel you know you tremble and everything like this it's like sitting in the middle of it just sitting in the middle of it and breath is usually the vehicle for doing that you know sometimes breathing in very deeply sort of sense of owning it completely oh and kind of relaxing on the out breath the person wouldn't really know that i was doing it you know and it isn't just that i'm trying to calm myself down It's more profound than that, actually. There's something quite transformative about that depth of taking responsibility for your side of it. Feeling what you feel, that's the simplest way to say it. And that breathing in and feeling it fully and then relaxing, giving it some space. But while doing that, what I've found is really important is to just keep, not necessarily, eye contact is good, but staying right there with the person, which usually means just looking at them and listening to them. Because when when I do that, and I know this from feedback from people, the person is feeling heard, and feeling heard really starts to change the dynamic right away, you know? So I don't know which comes first, you know, it's kind of interdependent, that I'm feeling my side of it, as I say, embodied, not not in the head, the way that a person receives it is that I'm listening to them, that they're being heard. And so it's interdependent in that way.
0: Well, let me see if I can repeat it back to you in my own words, not only so you feel heard, but also <laughs> to maybe add a little bit of some words that might give people a further sense of how they can operationalize your advice in their own lives. And and then you can tell me if I'm barking up the right tree. So if I'm hearing you correctly, For you, when you're face-to-face with somebody who's, you know, pissing you off, the move is to go sort of south of the neckline. Instead of getting caught up in the stories, it's to notice how is the emotion manifesting in your body right now. This is a skill that is supercharged through mindfulness meditation, where you sit, try to focus on one thing. Usually it's your breath coming in and going out. And then every time you get distracted... You start again and again and again. And a lot of people, when they notice how distractible they are, they fear they're failed meditators. But actually, that's the good stuff, because what you want is to get familiar with how wild your mind is, how powerful your emotions are, so that when you're bombarded, buffeted by a big wave of anger, judgment, disdain, homicidal urges (laughs) in the middle of a conversation with somebody difficult, you don't have to act it out blindly. You can tune into it as a step 1 and as a step 2 if i heard you correctly was to realize that the other person has their own mind and their own feelings and their own story about what's going on and it takes two to tango
1: very good <laughs> you know fun. i'm
0: always looking for the gold star <laughs>
1: <laughs> no that sounds great and so one rule of thumb comes from 8th century i think buddhist teacher called shanti deva he talks about all these situations of being on the verge just being on the verge of biting the hook, let's just say that, on the verge of just going crazy and going down the the uh, rabbit hole of negativity, you know? So he just says, don't speak, don't act, just, he says, remain like a log of wood. So a lot of people have interpreted that, don't speak, don't act, that's very, very good advice, you know? Uh, but remain like a log of wood, A lot of people have interpreted that as uh, repression or, you know, something along those lines. But this is not repression. Don't speak, don't act to allow the room, to allow the space so that you can really connect physically with what's going on with you. And here's a very important point. The attitude towards what's coming up in you is a, I would say, friendly one. It's an attitude of okayness with whatever's coming up. You know, uh, Sony Rinpoche, who's one of my teachers, he, he always says, you have to be okay with not being okay, <laughs> which is a, a great way to say it. So it isn't just that you're kind of biting your tongue and just holding on to the white knuckling the edge of your seat, you know. There's actually some kind of tenderness or warmth that you're extending towards what's coming up in you. This is actually pretty pretty crucial part of the uh formula, I guess you could say, or the method, or however you want to say it, this fundamental okayness with yourself as you are, some kind of not being critical of yourself for what's going on there. So, you know, there's two ways you go down the rabbit hole. One is to let the other person have it, which I've been discussing. The other is that you beat up on yourself for being, you know, mm-hmm. here I've taken the bodhisattva vow or I'm calling myself a good person or something, you know, whether that's religious or not. I I think of myself as a decent human being. And then then along comes whoever it is, Mr. T, and you just start kind of going crazy. But then you could feel very ashamed of yourself, like you failed the test of nobility or something along those lines. So it's really important, this acceptance or warmth, tenderness. I love the word tenderness. Do you get the idea of what I'm trying to say there?
0: I do. I was a little distracted because when you said Mr. T, I was thinking about the character from the A-Team back in the 1980s, oh. and I was oh, right. thinking about how much I loved Mr. T, but then I realized you were talking about Mr. T, who used a to be different president Mr. Of the T. United States. Yeah. That's right, that's right, <laughs> <what> I was. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> right, I'm glad you clarified that.
0: So now that we're talking about somebody that many people find very difficult, it does raise the question you talked about before. Uh, Shanti Deva says, you know, be like a log. And you said, like, don't get that confused with repression, because that's not what it is. It's a friendly allowing that you can observe your emotion arise and pass and then respond wisely instead of reacting blindly. Mm -hmm. But there's something else that I suspect a lot of people are thinking. They may be thinking, oh, well, Dan brought this Buddhist nun on who's saying I should take this vow to help everybody. That's just going to make me a sucker, a palooka, a chump, somebody who's a doormat. And I want to give you the space to make clear that is... Absolutely not what you're proposing.
1: That's absolutely not what I'm proposing. Yeah. So first of all, I, I don't want to give anybody the impression that I'm wanting everybody to take this vow. You know, you ask me what's non-negotiable for me. Let's say for all the people listening and so forth, it would just be um, maybe personal vow where you wake up in the morning and you just say, I'm going to do my best to not cause any harm today and to actually... Be of help when I can, you know. When I lose it totally, bite the hook and, you know, get carried away, I'm not going to beat up on myself. I'm going to say, okay, older but wiser, you know. This is how one learns. Where one's triggers are, for instance. Doormat. I, what does doormat even mean, actually? It means uh, that you're always nice or something like that. That you. How would you define doormat?
0: I think quite literally, it's letting people walk all over you.
1: I see. Okay, that's pretty literal, isn't it? (laughs) I guess I could have figured that out. (laughs) (laughs) IQ test, what is the definition of doormat? (laughs) So anyway, uh, it isn't letting people walk all over you because letting people walk all over you usually comes from very low self-esteem, right? Mm -hmm. Like lack of confidence and and you feel like you deserve to be walked all over. It's not like just kind of accidental. It's it's almost a something that you carry around, a habitual pattern that you have, where you you let people walk all over you. It's like some kind of identity almost that you have. And so this is quite different. When I said it's kind of transformative, the practice, you grow in a kind of confidence, and the reason is because. You've seen it all, you know, about yourself, and you haven't condemned yourself. You see, and you realize that, wow, there's a lot of people just like me. Maybe everybody's just like me. And we just keep doing the wrong things. We just keep biting the hook. We just keep reacting in the same old ways that inflames the situations. And so there's some kind of real uh, confidence that you have that you can... Hold your seat and be there with the other person. And also, you get pretty smart about boundaries, you know, too. Like, this doesn't preclude that you don't let somebody walk all over you. Because why? Because that's the worst thing they could be doing to themselves, is walk all over you, you know? And it wouldn't be so good for you either. But, you know, it's like bringing, as I keep using the same language, but bringing out the worst in somebody. To let them walk all over you. So you definitely don't let people walk all over you, but it's not because you have a chip on your shoulder. It's because you're actually taking interest in them. Sometimes the um, emphasis is so much on what I'm going through because it's so tumultuous, you know, that it doesn't seem like the other person's even in the equation. But the fact is th- this advice that I gave about Not necessarily eye contact, but keep looking at the person's face and really listening to what they're saying so that they feel that there's some kind of genuine communication going on. The result of that is that they don't want to walk over you. It's sort of disarming in a way, you know. A person who is really aggressive, it's part of their method in the world, you know. They know when they're really aggressive with people, they know what their reaction is going to be back and somehow they can win the game by getting the other person so enraged that the other person loses their dignity, the other person loses their intelligence, you know? It's very disarming to actually not retaliate in the same way, but on the other hand, not meek and afraid, like a timid little mouse or something, when the cat appears. But instead, you're sort of um, very present, and very open and very curious even, you know. It's radical, actually. It's pretty radical. It's a great practice for the world, I would say.
0: Coming up, Pema Chodron talks about why coming from a place of love does not preclude us from getting pissed once in a while. Why keeping a sense of humor when we're setting our intentions or taking a big vow is so helpful because it doesn't set ourselves up for failure. And we talk about the actual language of the bodhisattva vow and why admitting how vast and impossible it is, is actually and counterintuitively empowering.
2: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. Slash happier. It's Mental Health Awareness Month. And while meditation is good for your mental health, it can also be challenging. The Ten Percent Happier app makes starting meditation easy. Download the app for free wherever you get your apps. Just to build on this discussion about the capacity that one can develop for uh High degree of compassion alongside the ability to draw boundaries and to take sometimes pretty decisive action in the world. It's bringing to mind a bumper sticker I saw at the Insight Meditation Society where I do my meditation retreats on one of the Subarus in the parking lot. I want to tell you what the bumper sticker said, but I just want to first ask Are you okay with a little bit of uh, foul language?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Okay.
0: So the bumper sticker said, I'm all love and light and a little bit of go fuck yourself. (laughs) And that, that seemed to kind of hit the nail on the head. Like you can take this vow and obviously this bumper sticker is tongue in cheek, but you can take this vow, whether it's the formal bodhisattva vow or just a daily promise you might make to yourself to be helpful and kind But that doesn't mean you don't take tough action if you disagree with Mr. T.
1: That's right. And there's a lot of uh, pretty profound examples of this in terms of activists. The person I always think of as a really good example of this is a Martin Luther King. I mean, I guess it comes from Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, but nobody is healed till everybody is healed. The beloved Mm. family uh, notion. I'd say this is kind of that kind of attitude. There's respect for the other person, even if they're very, very greedy, very, very mean-spirited, very prejudiced. Quite a lot of people might think respect was going a little too far, but there's some kind of, well, you know, it could be just, okay, where is the goodness of this person? I want to see it, you know. I want to have this conversation so that I might actually see this in them. So of course, if I see it, then they're feeling it, right? But I guess to really get down to what your question is there, and the reason I use Martin Luther King as an example is that it leads to action. It leads to action. You see injustice as injustice. And you may be absolutely agree with everyone who says, we have a right to be mad about this, to be angry about this, to see the unfairness of this. But then this approach would say, yeah, but how can we best bring about change? If there's a system of oppression for whole groups of people, how could we most effectively bring about change? And then a lot of people would say, by storming the Bastille, you know, let's attack. And I guess what I'm saying is that just adds more aggression to the world. It's a short-term solution that really just creates more pollution if you talk about emotional aggression and all of that as pollution, do you see what I'm saying?
0: I do, and and yet the question that comes up in my mind is: Is it never justified to storm a Bastille? I mean, I know the Dalai Lama was once asked about you know the killing of Osama bin Laden, and you know while obviously the Dalai Lama is not a big fan of assassination, he did, if memory serves, say that there could be some justification for that.
1: Well, I don't really know. I don't think I have any fixed ideas about right and wrong in in this whole area. I think I'm more addressing like a pretty down-home, earthy approach of how you personally, how I personally, how anybody listening personally could deescalate aggression in their own lives and, and the process of that being to really help a person. You know, it gets kind of conceptual to say, oh, well, does that mean that you never can do such and such? Well, I I don't know. If you really care about helping, you do things, you know. Maybe what you do is be Doctors Without Borders, you know. You go to the places where there's oppression. Also, you don't expect any applause for any of this. That's a big thing, you know. I mean, you think of how Thich Nhat Hanh, he took that Doctors Without Borders approach in Vietnam, and he was being helpful to both sides. He and his monks, they didn't two sides and they were there to help whoever needed help and they didn't they didn't get any applause for that he had to leave Vietnam you know he couldn't go back until just recently before he died because he was so disliked for doing that so it's not like you're going to get applause necessarily and then you don't care about getting applause that's not the reason the reason is to you know I'll just use that language again de-escalate aggression in the world you know and in the process help people and i do want to bring out this point again about bringing out the best in each other rather than the worst
0: i think for for sure in interpersonal situations if the person you're talking to has a sense that you are doing your best to hear them and see their best that can bring out their best you know perhaps it was unhelpful to take us all the way to osama bin laden but i think what put me in in mind of that is around this time last year, I was with the Dalai Lama and, there, and he was talking to a bunch of um, activists, young activists, and they were saying, you know, you're talking about the Bodhisattva vow. You're talking about infinite compassion. And that's not going to get us anywhere. We need, you know, we're, we're in these corrupt entrenched systems around the world that are destroying the planet, um, holding people down, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to get there if we don't get our hands in the dirt. What did he say? I don't wanna mangle his words, but my memory is that he said, you will be more effective if you're motivated by caring, by compassion, by altruism, than you will if you're motivated by fear and anger and hatred.
1: Yeah, that's how I look at it also. You'll be more effective. Maybe it can't be changed, but if if there's any possibility of it being changed, it's not going to be through aggression. It's going to be through caring or coming more from that kind of place. If you want people to hear what you're asking for, you want to be really smart about what closes people's hearts and ears and what allows them to be receptive, you know. And you know that it's not always going to get through. Everybody has those encounters where You just can't get through. It just looks like you're talking to a robot or something. But you yourself are a better person for not having fed your negative mindset. So one time I heard the Dalai Lama make the distinction between hatred and anger, in which he said anger was appropriate, but hatred never was. Hmm. What do you think about that statement?
0: Well, I don't want to hold myself up as some sort of expert here, but to me, that makes a lot of sense. It brings to mind something that um, a Jesuit priest, Father Gregory Boyle, once said right here on this show, which is that I was asking him about evil and he said, I don't I don't believe in evil. I believe in bad behavior. And so, yeah, hatred would be a holistic condemnation. And I, I think given how complex human beings are, that probably doesn't make sense most of the time, if, if not anytime, but that doesn't preclude getting angry or condemning specific actions with which you disagree.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. And Father Gregory Boyle is a great example. He's a friend of mine. He's a great example of he's devoted his life to action. You know, action is what he does, but it's action about really when it comes down to it, he wanted to try to stop gang violence he ended up creating a situation where many, like, I don't know how many thousands of young people's lives have been turned around and changed by that man, you know, and what he's created with Homeboy Industries. So he's a good example of somebody who's really puts his money where his mouth is, you know, but it all comes from a place of love, you know. And he's very challenged, of course when sometimes the attitude of regular citizens or the law enforcement or various things like that are so opposed to what he's doing and think he's so off the wall and that he's aiding and abetting you know hardened criminals so he has a lot lot of hard things he has to work with but bottom line for him is is love and caring and compassion and he's turned so many lives around it's just astounding really
0: As have you. And since we're talking about turning lives around, if people are listening to this and thinking, okay, yeah, that makes sense. If I can have an attitude of omnidirectional compassion, even if it's merely an aspiration and I'm willing to fail all the time, but it is my North Star, if I can have that North Star, yeah, I I hear you. Maybe I'll be more effective, happier, calmer, more equanimous. Maybe that is the best way to reach my goals, whatever they are. I can imagine people who have come to see your point, which is the same point made by the Dalai Lama and all the Dalai Lamas before him and the Buddha before them. If that is attractive to people, how do we go about remembering to keep this as a North Star? Because the world is constantly pulling us away, constantly pulling us into our own egos and our own desires.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I guess it comes back to the original thing, the vow, some kind of vow. But setting an intention and uh, doing it every morning, there's this idea that in the morning you set your intention, in the evening you look back and see how did it go, and if it really went <laughs> really badly, you know, then you give yourself a break and there's some kind of self-compassion. Next day you set the intention again and every day you work on it, you know. I'll tell you, can I digress a little bit, tell a funny story? So there's four days on the Buddhist calendar, at least Tibetan Buddhist calendar, where everything is supposed to be multiplied, I think it's 10 million times. That means your positive actions and your negative actions for this day are multiplied, right? So I wake up in the morning, I'm staying with my daughter, and of course, I say, I certainly want positive actions today to be multiplied and not not these negative actions. I set this noble intention, you know. So halfway through the day, my daughter and I have the big fight. And so we're going at it in our very, you know, habitual family dynamic way that, you know, we've been entrenched in for years. And all of a sudden, I just start laughing and laughing. And she said, why are you laughing? And I told her. They said because this is a day where everything multiplies 10 million times and and I think I just, you know, blew it badly. So of course that completely changed the dynamic. She started laughing too. So you never know where the opening's going to come. But that was a great moment for us and it was based on me having this intention but rather than crying because I blew it, it became so funny, you know. It was just like, wow. And she saw the humor in it greatly, too. So I don't know. But you can't be too casual about it because it's so counter habitual. You know, it goes against habits that we already have well entrenched of biting the hook. Does that language, biting the hook, communicate?
0: does to me. You know, the urge comes marching through the mind to say something that's going to, you know, ruin the next 48 hours of your marriage or whatever it is. And you can either (laughs) let it swim by or you can bite the hook.
1: That's right. Perfect example. So you set an intention and someone told me recently, they said, it's not enough for me to set this intention every morning. I have to do it every hour. So they have a little ding on their watch, you know, that goes off and they reset the intention. So it's like they go into every hour without intention. So, you know, you do what you have to do, right? And I think the story about my daughter and I, what I'm trying to get across there is, it's not like then you lose the virtue contest or something when you uh blow it. It's just like, okay, you know, let's try again, you know. There's all these studies about the brain and what's happening in your brain when you do all these things. Every time you bite the hook, you're just making an old pattern stronger and stronger. And there's actually grooves in the brain that gets deeper. I found that so interesting. But every time you don't bite the hook, you're opening up new pathways in the brain. The more you do that, then the more you're apt to not bite the hook. So you, you can do yourself a great favor, you know, by actually how you're working with old habits by not strengthening them, but by weakening them, you could say, or or you could look at it in a more exciting way that you're actually opening up new pathways in your brain, you know. So you're not such a slave to your old habits.
0: In a world where we're fed so much bad news on social media, yeah. on the actual news, what you just said is incredible good news, which is that we're not stuck with our old patterns, that the brain and by extension, the mind... That they're trainable and you can change
1: yeah it is really good news and that's the fact that, that the brain is very mal- mal- malleable i'm a little bad with language sometimes <laughs> malleable <laughs> it is my first language but nevertheless <laughs> nevertheless so um you know buddhism always taught that that the mind was very malleable so no one is trapped but on the other hand one does have to make some kind of intention or commitment to oneself to not just strengthen the old habit, but to do something different. I had one teacher said, just do something different. It doesn't matter what it is. Get up and dance Mm. and sing. Just don't bite the hook, you know, just Mm. don't strengthen that old habit.
0: Since we are, as you've often said, programmed for denial, programmed for forgetting, setting these intentions, taking these vows can be really powerful. And I don't know if there's a question in here, but I was just going to relate my own experience with this, which is that when I first started to hear about setting intentions or taking a vow, I, you know, because I can be pretty dismissive as a baseline, I, you know, I wrote it off as a little cheesy, but over time I've really tried to, you know, when I wake up in the morning to say, you know, my job on the planet is to make awesome content that, helps people do their lives better and to, you know, really try to remind myself throughout the day that every activity from meditation to working out to actual work is dedicated to the benefit of other people, to the benefit of all beings. And by the way, I'm I'm one of them. And I've gone so far as to get a little, I don't know if you can see this, but I got a little tattoo right on my wrist that says F-T-B-O-A-B, for the benefit of all beings. Just to remind hey, me, because wow. uh, it's so easy to forget all the time.
1: Hey, no, there's an idea for your listening one. say, oh, God, get a tattoo. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> you become their role model. But I think it's really important because another way you could look at vows and in setting intentions like this, because I've been praising it, you just praised it. But some, you could also look at it as setting yourself up for failure. You know, like setting yourself up for disappointment. So you do have to have a sense of humor about this whole thing. You just can't be too serious. I mean, you are serious. Like it is non-negotiable, for me, for you. But on the other hand, if you're too serious with no sense of humor. I don't know, you just become gloomier and gloomier about how bad your temper is or how much jealousy you have. You know, so you have to have some kind of sense of humor. You know, I feel that so strongly.
0: I couldn't agree more. But I I realize I've committed a bit of journalistic malpractice in this interview, which is that I didn't ask you to share with us some of the actual words of the vow, because the Bodhisattva vow is radical. I'm not going to ask you to recapitulate the whole thing here, but I wonder if you could share with us some of the words so we could get a sense of it.
1: Well, as the uh, enlightened people of the past gave birth to Bodhicitta, decided that the most important thing for them was to help other people, and in fact put other people in front of themselves, like I won't attain enlightenment until everyone has attained enlightenment, which is like mission impossible. So they say, as the enlightened or awakened people before me have have awakened bodhicitta, this wish to benefit others and to work on yourself so that you're capable of doing that, I also will take that vow and work for the benefit of people. So that's kind of how it goes. But it it is like until everyone is crossed over, you know, I won't cross over. It's that radical in terms of others first, but not doormat as what you were saying.
0: And it might be worth dwelling on the mission impossible aspect of this because not only, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but not only is the person taking the vow saying, yeah, I'm going to meditate my face off, but I'm not going to cross over to enlightenment until everybody does, which uh, again is mission impossible. But there are also passages in the vow that talk about how delusions are numberless and I vow to cure them. You know, suffering is endless and I vow to cure it. It's really an embrace of the impossibility, which somehow becomes empowering?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it's so vast. The wish is so vast. You know, We say mission impossible that you can relax a little bit, you know, because it really humbles you that you're going to just do the best you can do in your lifetime. And when you die, you can feel that you did the best and you can feel you didn't waste your life. And so I think that the fact that it's so vast, like everybody until nobody is, you know, everyone is enlightened, very dubious, you know, that that could actually happen. Nevertheless, you take the vow of that magnitude, and it does, it humbles you, you know, because you say, wow, I couldn't even get through this Tuesday without biting the hook. But you could say that human heart by human heart, they can get bigger and bigger, and human mind by human mind can be more and more open. That seems so doable to me, to Dedicate my life to to seeing that happen as much as possible, you know, and not getting discouraged when it's not the reality of what actually is happening in your Tuesday. But maybe on Wednesday, some very heartening <laughs> things happen. You, know? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's it's just like life itself. It goes up and goes down. It goes up and down. And. You know, you can't be in it for your own getting applause and rewards because then you'll definitely jump off the Golden Gate Bridge without your first opportunity.
0: (laughs) You know, what you're saying about how you can relax into the impossibility of it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of something. I hope I'm not making an inappropriate connection here, but I think I'm on to something. But the Dalai Lama, when asked by very altruistic activist people about the frustration that they, the activists, feel in the face of seemingly intractable problems, he will, I believe, say, you know, like, you got to think about this in terms of multiple lifetimes. And you don't have to believe in reincarnation for this to land. You could just think of the broad sweep of history right. or the infinity of the universe. Yeah. We're part of a very big story here. And if you can just relax back into that perspective, it can, it can give you some, some energy.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good perspective to take, you know. Uh, looking back, let's say looking back in a 100 years, looking back in 1,000 years, you know, whatever distance of even looking back in five years, what's happened with you personally in terms of your heart and your mind and how how has that impacted other people, you know? How has that inspired other people or in some way, you know, made someone's day lighter and go. keep going back to the same language, because I really like this language about bringing out the best in ourself and in others, rather than the worst, because that's what I'm seeing. Social media can so harsh. Everyone is, gives vent because you're not with an actual person to escalating aggression. It's just like uh, perfected skill or something, you know. So you wish to sort of begin to infiltrate that a little bit, ventilate that a little bit, in terms of the people you meet anyway. Or in my case, books, you know. That's just the kind of what I fell into, you know, and that's how I'm actually trying to walk the talk, is by writing books and giving talks and stuff like that, you know. Mm -hmm. But people do it in so many different ways. There's a lot of ways to be a horse whisperer.
0: Coming up, Pemba talks about why putting others first does not mean leaving yourself out of the equation and how healing yourself has an effect on your relationships with everybody else. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter and you need that kitty litter to do the job potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let tidy care alert, help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring and that means it's graduation season. And I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favorite. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name graduation-themed graphics or photos which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% Happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if... They were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&M's, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. I do want to go back to this refrain that you keep going back to, which is bringing out the best in other people and yourself. The vow, the bodhisattva vow, the notion of bodhicitta, which is putting other people first. It puts the whole idea of self-interest in a different light because on the one hand, you are ostensibly putting the interests of others before you, but actually that makes you happier.
1: That's right. And so the Dalai Lama who you keep quoting, he calls it positive selfishness. In other words, by putting others' interest in front of your own, you benefit. So he calls that positive selfishness, you know. That's not your intention, but that's the very um, wonderful side effect of putting others first, is that you benefit so greatly from it. But, you know, to the degree that you benefit, then the degree the people that you meet and talk with and everything, they benefit. It, it's completely interdependent between what's going on my side and your side, just totally interdependent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would say my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who I've been working with for a long time, I'm sure you know him. Um, he talks about, this is my terminology, but I'm using my terminology on top of his concept. My terminology, which is tongue in cheek, is the cheesy upward spiral which is that as you, you know, learn to get a sense of humor about your own mishagas, your own inner cacophony, your demons, well, then you're you're a little bit more understanding and empathetic toward other people. And as your relationships improve, given that relationships are probably the most important variable when it comes to human flourishing, well, that makes you even happier. And then as you get even happier, your relationships improve even further and up you go. And that's the interdependence you're talking about, and that's the wise or positive selfishness that the Dalai Lama is talking about.
1: Why do you call it cheesy?
0: Uh, because I'm a wise ass who um, can't help himself.
1: <laughs> yeah, and actually, it it communicates pretty well too, because it has a it it doesn't sound holier than thou or something like that, right? I'm a great admirer of Josephs
0: as am I he is he is phenomenal but i'm a great admirer of yours as well and i just want to ask you a few more questions before i let you go we talked about self interest and i'm just curious in all of this talk about putting other people first you know i i could imagine there would be people hearing this saying to themselves particularly women i don't want to generalize here but particularly women or people who identify as women that you know the, the whole culture is telling us to put other people first all the time. We're socialized for this kind of toxic generosity. And I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a kind of subtlety here that that you're not left out. You too are part of all beings everywhere that we're dedicating our lives to and and that you do want to cultivate a positive relationship with yourself and care for yourself and have your boundaries as part of all of this.
1: Yeah, you know, the vow actually is, I am going to work on myself in order to be able to help other people. You know, in other words, to the degree that I'm less reactive, to the degree that I'm less, you know, resentful and critical and so forth, to that degree, I benefit other people. So the vow actually says, you know, I vow to work on myself in order to be there for other people. So, do you see how it kind of works together like that? So, it's not just, it isn't this usual thing of like women being told, you should put everybody in front of you, your children, your husband. You're supposed to take care of everybody and forget about you, you know, slave away and uh, like that. It's not talking about that. In fact, I think it would be the antidote to that somehow. Hmm. So, you could chew on that as a big question. How is that an antidote? but it is actually. Gloria Steinman would like this. I'm of the generation, you know, where we we really rejected all of that big time, you know, in the 70s.
0: Yes, I mean, I have never met or interviewed Gloria Steinem. Won't claim to know much about her, but she has a book title that I really like, which is The Truth Sets You Free, But First It Pisses You Off. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think that's what happens in meditation.
1: That's a great title. The truth sets you free, but first it pisses you off. You have to like her if she has a title <laughs> like that, right? Yeah, that could be that could be actually a very helpful rule of thumb for meditation, you know. Like when you sit down and really get to know yourself. Maybe it's setting you free, but what do they say? You have to go through to go get out the other mm-hmm. side. You say, couldn't we couldn't we just, you know, like get in an airplane and fly over all this stuff? <laughs> it turns out it doesn't work, right? You have to kind of go through it. But, you know, there's something uh, quite radical, but uh, a teaching that means a lot to me, which is uh, the only place you're going to find sanity, let's use that word, is to really come to know the insanity because it's in there, it's buried in there. The only way you're going to come to know non-aggression is to become very familiar with your aggression. And then from that, the insight dawns about non-aggression. Like you don't find it by getting rid of this stuff. You find it by becoming intimate with this stuff in a very tender-hearted, all-embracing way.
0: Yeah, what you're saying just reinforces the notion that this isn't some treacly, saccharine little vow, I'm going to be nice to people. The vow is I'm going to do some inner work that can be hellacious and um, it's pretty gnarly.
1: It can be hellacious and it's pretty gnarly. Interesting language. (laughs) 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 Yes, absolutely. That's right. So that that's a good way to think about it, I think, and much more palatable. That way of putting it definitely communicates better than I'm going to just set out to put other people in front of myself. It's too uh, That's too too loaded, I guess you could say, with in terms of old patterns that weren't very helpful.
0: The other thing I wanted to ask you about before I let you go is you talked about Martin Luther King saying something to the effect of no one's free until we're all free. And I'm almost embarrassed. I'm not almost. I'm embarrassed to admit this, that I like that notion, but on some level, I'm not sure I have. I get it in my molecules because it, it's easy to for me to be intellectually aware that there are people suffering all over the planet. And I, as a reporter for many years, I, I was right there interviewing them, but it's pretty easy to forget about that and just be sucked into your own life. So how is it that somebody being unfree, either in my town or on this planet, affects my degree of freedom.
1: Mm. Well, I'm not sure about the question that you're asking, but my understanding about Gandhi's view and Martin Luther King's view and other people that have modeled after this, called, as I mentioned before, beloved community, it's that you can't just heal your side of it because things are much more interdependent than that. Things are interdependent. Therefore, to the degree that you heal yourself, you just described it earlier about how that affects the relationships you have with other people, and then how that feeds back and makes you happier, so that the whole thing is completely related with each other, you know? So his view was, it's not good enough to just be able to ride at the front of the bus. You want to work with the state of mind that put people in the back of the bus to begin with. Mm. Otherwise, it's just a short-term goal that that's not really changing the system at all and not changing people's hearts at all and not calling on the goodness of the people that put you at the back of the bus. It's just demonizing. So they were trained to not retaliate. That was one of the main tools is to not retaliate. I've read the speeches of Martin Luther King's where he says, when you don't retaliate, at a certain point, people get embarrassed by their actions mm. because they begin to see that they're being very cruel or heartless. And so that was what he felt. And it, I don't know, I think it was proved pretty true. You do your best to change the system. And you do that, in his case, like non retaliation with a big, uh, big tool. But on the other hand, you take a stand. And you keep marching or you keep boycotting until something is changed in the system. Does that make any sense?
0: It makes complete sense. It's probably my question that didn't make sense. But I think what I was trying to get at is it's easy for somebody like me who's wired for selfishness, (laughs) I I hate to admit, to think, okay, yeah, people are suffering around the world. I've seen it with my own eyes in person. I've seen it. I see it on my TV. But I'm not sure that means I am unfree. But I think the point that you and MLK and Gandhi are trying to make is that there is a lack of freedom in the hardening of your heart that has to happen to ignore the people at the back of the bus, to ignore the people without food on the other side of the planet.
1: Yeah, that's it exactly. And you know, people on the other side of the planet can just be the people that you come in touch with. Like any Mm -hmm. city in the United States, you come in touch with such suffering of people living on the streets and, um, the encampments that people live in and the conditions that people live in and so forth. You can just deal with what comes into your life. And then some people like yourself, when you're as a reporter, you're drawn to really go out into the world and see the suffering on a much bigger scale. Of course, we see it on the news all the time. But what I'm saying is one person at a time kind of approach, you know.
0: Yes, that makes Mission Impossible quite a bit more possible. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm sensitive to your time. So before I let you go, let me ask you one big open-ended question, which is... <laughs>
1: That's the third time <laughs> you said that.
0: <laughs> I know. I know. You can't trust me. Uh, forget the tattoo. Um, what, what I'm trying to uh, get at here is, is there something I should have asked... But I didn't ask, is there a point you wanted to make that I have not let you make?
1: No, I feel fine. Is there something else you want me to say?
0: No, (laughs) I just want to make sure I didn't uh, cut you off in any way.
1: No, you absolutely did not. Not at all. So thank you. Thank you very, very much.
0: Thank you. It's a huge pleasure to talk to you. And even though we're taping this in uh, September, Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year to you too. 2024. Oh my God, what is it going to be? We don't know, do we?
0: But there's a vow we can take that might uh, fortify us. That's right. Thanks again to Pemba Chodron. Always awesome to talk to her. If you want to hear more links from our New Year's non-negotiable series, check out the show notes. Also, I reference my time with the Dalai Lama in this episode. If you want to listen to that whole series that we produced uh, with him this time last year, we'll put links to that in the show notes as well. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davy, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. Kevin O'Connell is our director of audio and post-production. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Alicia Mackey leads our marketing. And Tony Magyar is our director of podcasts.